Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Tasha, Genevieve, Scott, and I have been working together for many years now and working on this podcast together since 2015. The Next Picture Show has mostly been a passion project for us, but we've recently started a Patreon to support it. Here's where you come in. As a supporter at the $3 a month level, you'll get a weekly newsletter with podcast updates and links to our written work and other film writing we've admired from the week, and usually a little essay from me. At the $5 a month level, you'll have access to bonus audio segments where we argue about films that didn't make the main podcast and whatever else we feel will spark a good discussion. We're even delving into gasp television. We've had recent audio discussions about Spider-Man Far From Home and Netflix's Stranger Things, and we have some more on the way, including conversations about Ari Aster's horror movie, Human Summer, and the new Fast and Furious movie, Hobbs and Shaw. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow, and currently, you could be the person that puts us over the top for our first monthly goal, and wouldn't that feel good? It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can... Enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky is not a name we speak any longer around here now that she's joined the collective, but if her current mission goes very poorly, her name will be restored and visitation will be every alternate Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. in the hastily dug garden out back. Every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're manning up, and we're considering what manning up means. (laughs) Mostly it seems to mean hitting things, or maybe kicking things, but with the power of punches. Are are we even allowed to talk about this? Wait, what? Well, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. So how are we going to manage an entire podcast where the point is us talking about Fight Club? We're going to bypass talking about Fight Club and we're just going to live it. So I'm calling this Movie Fight Club. We're going to throw down in a vicious critical battle that makes us feel alive and like we're part of something larger than ourselves. That sounds dangerous and unpleasant. Too bad. It's your first time at Movie Fight Club. You have to fight. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was a terrific, hilarious movie that you underrated because you didn't fully take in the meta-commentary. Well, fine. Defending Your Life is a brilliant modern comedy classic, and you have no appreciation for the dry, self-deprecating wit of Albert Brooks. Tropical Malady is an insanely boring film. Outrageous. MASH is a lively, harmless comedy, and you can't see the humor because you're hung up on how misogynist it is. Oh, okay. Audition is an exercise in empty sadism and grotesquely graphic violence with nothing to say about either the role of women in the modern world or the experience of urban anime and repression. It's vapid, worthless, poorly acted, and not even particularly moving or scary. (gasps) My heart. I can't. Everything going black. (gasps) Oh my God. Tasha, I think you killed him. Why did you say that? I thought you admired audition oh i do that film is terrifying it'll dominate your nightmares i just i always knew i would eventually have to take scott down with a completely unfair sucker punch and i just wanted to destroy something beautiful well i'm gonna catch my breath can you tell everybody about this week's pairing keith i guess i better before you come for my most treasured movie opinions this week we're looking at two films that feature secret fight clubs secret identities and protagonists trying to reclaim their sense of worth through violence 1989's Fight Club, based on a Chuck Palahniuk novel, is an early David Fincher film built around an unnamed miserable office drone who befriends an iconoclastic daring man and founds a secret underground club where men hit each other for sport. 
At least that's what he thinks is going on until a much starker series of truths emerge. The new Riley Stearns film, The Art of Self-Defense, is openly styled after Fight Club with a similarly hapless young man falling under the spell of a charismatic oddball who claims the path to self-actualization and power comes from controlled violence, secret fights, and ruthless adherence to a credo. Both Fight Club and The Art of Self-Defense are bleak satires about toxic masculinity, but they both wrap the theme in a box of humor about joyous masculinity and the freedom it brings real men trapped in a fake world. So this week, we'll look at how Fight Club's innovative structure and daring made it a cult hit that outlasted its critics. And next week, we'll add in The Art of Self-Defense and see how it uses a similar narrative structure, but with very different story tricks. In the meantime, Keith, isn't this your first time at Movie Fight Club 2? We'll be right back after a break. Like many of you, I was stuck. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh. Ow! It hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up all night. She ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No. God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. He had a plan. (laughs) To what purpose? In Tyler, we trusted. I gotta take a fight club up a notch. Each one of you has a homework assignment. You're gonna start a fight with a total stranger. It's not necessary. You're gonna lose. That hurt. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I'm stopping this. It's already done, so shut up. What kind of sick game are you playing? Oh my god. It's worth remembering that back in 1999, Fight Club was a box office disappointment and a critically divisive film that was widely dismissed by writers, turned off by its surface veneer of swaggering machismo. Roger Ebert called it, quote, the most frankly and cheerfully fascist big star movie since Death Wish. He described it as macho porn. Quote, women who have had a lifetime of practice at dealing with little boy posturing will instinctively see through it. Men may get off on the testosterone rush, unquote. Strangely enough, though, one of the most positive reviews of the time did come from a woman, New York Times' Janet Maslin, who did see through it, to the message underneath. She wrote, If watched sufficiently mindlessly, it might be mistaken for a dangerous endorsement of totalitarian tactics and super-violent nihilism and an all-out assault on society. But it means to explore the lure of violence in an even more dangerously regimented, dehumanized culture. It actually doesn't take too much mindlessness to get caught up in the surface traffic of Fight Club. The sardonic humor, the casual assumption of male superiority, the strong and compelling message for bored, disenfranchised modern men that real connection, real power, could come from following their impulses. Fight Club presents a pretty compelling vision of a secret society where even the most underemployed, lost, and miserable men know their place, 
feel a powerful sense of purpose and defend that purpose in ways that completely stymie the rich and powerful. It's a fantasy of complete control, and it's seductive enough that it's easy to miss that the film is also mocking those Fight Club members as easily controlled and manipulated, as empty souls who sell themselves out for the promise of purpose, because at least it sounds more seductive than paging hopelessly through the latest IKEA catalog looking for something new to buy. Watching Fight Club today, now that it's an acknowledged cult classic, a lot of things stand out about how daring screenwriter Jim Oles and director David Fincher were in telling this story. In particular, it's astonishing how fair they play with the audience by repeatedly, openly teasing their big twist, rather than trying to preserve it as a shock. It's fascinating how much of the film still plays as shocking, vulgar, and transgressive, even in a much more hard-to-shock age. That Helena Bottom Carter line about the last time she had such a vigorous sex is still both a laugh line and a gasp line. And it's a remarkable how the filmmakers play with audience expectations and sympathies in making that unnamed narrator, generally known as Jack because of one of the film's more complicated running gags, feel both relatable and repulsive, both brave and cowardly, both like the hero of the story and the villain. By the end of the film, the audience may be afraid for him, but they've also been primed to root for his smirking alter ego, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt with a kind of admirable cocksure elegance that's hard to resist, no matter how vile his behavior gets. Fincher and Knowles are selling that fantasy of control, and Tyler is the one in control throughout the film, which is ultimately about escaping his control, which ultimately turns out not to matter. The film finds an ending that's simultaneously hopeful and deeply nihilistic, with none of the conventional comfort of the usual madness stories. So why does Fight Club, this macho porn, this celebration of violence, stick with us so much 20 years later? Is it the fast-paced writing, the terrific performances, the dark appeal of an anti-consumerist fantasy that lets us dream that every waiter and barman is a secret warrior against conformity and complacency? Or is it just the secret wish to watch everything burn in the end? Eh, like the narrator of Fight Club, it could be two things. Let's talk about Fight Club. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on. It's one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God. This is crazy. So I... go crazy. Let her rip. Hey, I don't know about this. I don't either, but who gives a shit? No one's watching. What do you care? Wait, what? This is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What? Like in the <laughs> face? <laughs> Surprise me. This is so fucking stupid. Oh. Motherfucker! You hit me in the ear! Well, Jesus, I'm sorry. Ow! Christ! Why the ear, man? Oh, I fucked it up. Kind oh, of. that was perfect. So guys, this this is a film about masculinity and power, so obviously I want your perspectives, but it, it's aimed so clearly at like a specific brand of like young, frustrated man who's like feeling some form of impotence, who's possibly like crested that wave of idealism that comes with youth and is like looking at life ahead and trying to figure out who to blame for how it's disappointing. I'm curious how differently this plays for you now than it played for you 20 years ago. 
Hmm, that's an interesting question because I'm at a different point in my life. Uh, you know, back then I had a, a full-time job just sitting around watching movies. So I thought maybe I'd kind of beat the system, but now I'm an underemployed middle-aged man. So maybe I'm more likely to be uh, seduced by Fight Club's message now. That's, that's oh, why yeah, I've joined yeah. various Reddit forums I'd like to talk to you about after this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I don't know how much I see it differently so much as it's kind of become a Fight Club world in so many different yeah. ways. You know, it, there's the sort of the madness of the crowd uh, of willing to buy into something that explains their grievances and, and, and tells them that they've been cheated out of something that, that they're owed. Uh, you know, I've just seen that all over the place these days and, yeah. and, and even more toxic forms than this, I would argue. Yeah, except now they're pro-consumerist uh, white supremacists. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is like, they're like the Proud Boys, basically, except in this film, they're, they're, there's not that kind of ideology is not really attached to those activities, but that is where the frustrated masculinity is going. It's being mm-hmm. channeled into white supremacy and, you know, incels and all that, these other kind of men who are disenfranchised and then and kind of burrowing into their own masculinity and misogyny. Can't help but wonder if Chuck Palahniuk was just tapped into that world uh, earlier than other people, you know, but before it became such a center of online discourse, before every new Marvel movie we had to know, but how do the angry, angry incels feel about it? Uh, <laughs> you know, who is who is the person who is most upset on the internet and can we interview them? Like before all of that, a lot of us, I think, weren't as aware of these undercurrents, but Palahniuk wrote this book very much from a place of like listening to people's stories, listening to people's stories about uh, adulterating food at their restaurants with uh, with urine and semen, um, listening to stories about people like fighting and enjoying it, getting into a fight himself. Like a lot of this is drawn from stories that he was told and kind of like pulled together into a narrative. And I'm I'm wondering if he was just aware of a culture that was always there, but didn't used to have so much of a name and a presence. That is what really stands out about this film now is that he it's pretty clear that he in in this film saw something in the culture that a lot of people did not see and saw a lot of things coming and developing early enough where now we watch this film and it seems like oh well okay (laughs) this is the world we live in in a lot of ways but at the time it was predicting that world coming to fruition and what i can remember about seeing fight club in 99 is that you know this is a movie if you're a male gen xer it could speak to you. I'm thinking about there's this kind of quote where Tyler Durden talks about, you know, being the middle children of history with no purpose or place, no great war, no great depression, the great war being a spiritual war, etc. You know, it's just it's it's very interesting that sense of like, what is the point? What are we here for? What is what gives our lives purpose? It's certainly not going to be found in an IKEA catalog. What's our purpose? And also, where does the frustration over the world that has been created around us, where does that frustration end up going and that dissatisfaction end up going? And so, and so the, the film kind of is, a, is about expressing where it goes. Yeah, it, and I, I think part of why it works, too, is it's not that as if the problem isn't real. It's not as if these frustrations don't exist. And I think it, it is the film itself is seductive in a way that you kind of have to choose at what point you bail from Tyler Durden because the fight club itself is an extreme solution to you know the boredom and 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 the confinements of modern existence but you could argue that it's not really hurting anyone uh, but then you know things escalate in ways that, that at some point you you kind of have to maybe hop off the agenda here yeah i mean it does feel like there's a significant transition point in the narrative where fight club stops being about fight club and starts being about it being a recruiting tool yeah where where is that point for you where do you see that point <sighs> um i think 
maybe maybe at the point where we first start getting glimpses of Project Mayhem, like the when the first uh, boy shows up on their porch, um, and they just start like like ruthlessly browbeating him, and Jack, if we want to call him Jack for convenience's sake, is completely not on board. For about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then he just kind of jumps into it. Like, we're going to ruthlessly abuse this guy. And if he's still here in three days with, you know, no food or shelter encouragement, he is basically already brainwashed enough to be part of our our machine. He doesn't know what the machine is at that point, but he gives into it because it's what Tyler's doing and what Tyler wants. And you just so clearly see the point at which... Tyler's become a a cult leader and he's building a cult rather than building this thing that seems fairly egalitarian. You know, the the, the rule, if it's your first time at Fight Club, you have to fight uh, is basically saying, you know, no spectators. Like you're not here to get off on other people's violence. Like you're here to do something real and meaningful yourself. And there is kind of, I mean, mean, obviously I relate to it like very differently as a woman, but there is kind of an idea there that's been exploited over and over in, uh, you know, men's retreats, for instance, this idea of like retreating to the primal. Um, I think for everybody, there's a certain appeal in like get out and do something physical and meaningful and daring with your body. That's why extreme sports are so big. So I, I am curious if for either of you there there's ever like any kind of lizard brain appeal in the idea of of the fight clubs themselves. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, I would never do it. Uh, but but on a conceptual level, I, I get it. You know, I, I enjoy the you know violent video games and violent movies, and I think that is the you know the, the it's not like the the capacity for violence is totally absent, and even a meek uh, a meek man like myself, you know, uh, <laughs> and just the way it's presented, it, it has a kind of seductive appeal to it too. And yeah, how about you, Scott? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I if I ever really had the impulse to lash out in such a way. I mean, I think that, I think, um, you're been in a fight, Scott. Maybe I'm just kind of building up to one day when I surely explode. I've, I've never hit anybody. I've never, been but I've never, I've yeah. never been in a fight in my entire life. Yeah, I've maybe, never been hit. Could, I've can, never done that right here. We can, we can, we can change you guys that. Could, you guys could just, I don't feel like doing that though is the thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing Scott in his first night at Fight Club. Like, I don't really feel you like have, doing you have that to fight. It's thing. like uh, you know what? I'm gonna skedaddle. But <laughs> it's it, yeah. So that that impulse isn't there. The feelings there though. You know the place that Edward Norton gets to. His state of spiritual discontent is very identifiable. I think, uh, and that's kind of where I can kind of connect to the movie, and I can certainly recognize these more aggressive impulses as they materialize. I can recognize that externally even if even if i don't necessarily share that kind of vigor myself um at fighting spirit so um to me there's no there's no appeal i but i get it you know i'm not ready to uh join fight club i don't think there's ever been a time in my life where i've been at that level of upset and anger and and need need for violence but the feeling that gets this character to that place and gets some of these other men to that place is surely identifiable and and the film makes it appealing by showing how happy it makes everyone that participates in this there's not no one no one wants to leave fight club it's it's uh, in the, everyone kind of gets gets something they need out of it apparently and there's also there's so much emphasis on just kind of the brotherhood that comes out of it of people mm-hmm. helping each other up after a fight and hugging each other of uh, the crowd of people like gathering around afterwards to congratulate and like hug both of the participants it's not it's a very alpha male thing beating down an opponent and winning 
But it's in the end, it's not about dominance. It's about equality. It's about everybody kind of being on the same page, having expressed themselves. And it might also be there's there. I will not be the first to point out. There's a very strong homoerotic element oh, in this oh God, yeah. <laughs> uh, between what? Tyler and the narrator, and also uh, which is was a very like coupley relationship, you know, out of everything else. But then poor Angel, like he becomes sort of beaten up because he's making he's ma- he's making the narrator feel uncomfortable. Feelings uh, is sort of the subtext there. It's not too hard to, to read into. It and and like I think that is part of the you know that's definitely much woven into the film as well and, and that no none of the people involved seem to get it and I think is another way that kind of uh, the film question you know I think it's possible to read this like Starship Troopers to see it and kind of like not get the subversive element to it I don't think even like you know you don't have to be a, a super dumb person to miss all that but I think there's enough woven into it there's all these like things that that make you question it. and the fact that they don't really seem to understand part of the draw for them is to be uh, sweating and shirtless grappling with other men uh, is one of those elements well it is it's also a safe space sure (laughs) that's what this club is and that that really uh, you know right from the beginning when edward norton's character starts to you know go to these uh, support groups you know i mean that's all also just about finding a sense of comfort and connectedness that he's not getting already and when he finds it it's extremely soothing and uh, you know allows him to sleep and to function um where he wasn't before yeah it's in both cases it's uh it's catharsis there's so many moving parts to this film. I mean, one of the reasons uh, I just really enjoyed revisiting it after all of these years is because it. I think over time, it's very easy for this movie to flatten out into uh, a series of memorable catchphrases and memorable moments, like you know, big big reveals and and interesting performances, and you forget all of the little details and grace notes mm-hmm. uh, that make up this movie. It's the story is just told in such a weird way with like all of these little moving parts that. you know we're going to stop and break the fourth wall now we're going to flash back in a here's what really happened kind of way uh we're going to have like these weird little sidebars like uh the narrator talking about the pile of magazines there's a bunch of voiceover that appears at one point and kind of disappears i'm curious what you make of sort of the gimmickry of the movie how it's used to tell the story and if you have a, a particular like gimmick or like sort of outlying segment uh that you particularly like in this film yeah it's been imitate it in many ways but i'm struck by how smooth and fresh everything still feels like the ikea segment the way that's used you know i the little subliminal flashes of tyler showing up early on you know there's all these kind of uh uh, neat tricks like that i mean i i i like that he really kind of goes all the way with the fourth ball breaking uh, to the point where at one point you actually see the f- frames of the film, like the strips, the the the, well, the sprockets the holding in, uh, that hold the film. And, and the, I mean, I mean, just, you're going to do it, go all the way. I think it's it's very very well done that way. It's, uh, and it's a ride too. It just you just kind of like you hop on and you're kind of carried along from from bit to bit in a really it's not a traditional narrative in many ways but it, it's got a great rhythm to it um that opening credit sequence is astonishing oh I sure mean, like <laughs> you know he he kind of Fincher always does great credit yeah he sequence. did he's so that's his thing but like but that just immediately grips you with that dust brothers score and mm-hmm. and uh you're you're just traveling through uh this guy's i guess what cerebral cortex or mm-hmm. something something and coming out and it's a gun i mean this so, it's so exciting it gets you so it's such an adrenaline rush that the film largely sustains at that time just the amount of energy in the filmmaking is so stunning i mean it, you know and just it just the just fincher's willingness to, to go absolutely all the way with this thing just not like leave hold nothing back 
you know, there's so you know, you could pr- probably do a more you know studied, conservative kind of like careful rendering of this material, and he doesn't do it. He just is like goes all it goes Although all the way. Although with Fincher, it's going to be it's the illusion of chaos. <laughs> you know, everything. Oh, there's nothing. No, I mean, there's not. There's no chaos at all. I mean, yeah. like he it, that's he is not. This movie can channel all the anarchy that it wants, but it's got no anarchy behind the scenes. Like there's no frame of it that hasn't been fussed over to the nth degree but uh it works quite well yeah i have uh, a couple of little little details i uh, i recommended on, on our, in our newsletter for our patreon subscribers <clears throat> uh that uh brian rafferty's new book uh best movie year ever and there's a whole chapter on fight club and a couple uh, little details that i i like well one detail i like in particular which is the dust brothers score uh and they they told fincher apparently told them i got the quote wrong but but make a score that's like white guys who aren't as cool as they think they are and that's really such a great description wow. of that score, too. You know, and, and it kind film. of and it kind of fits it kind of fits the the film really well, too. Wow, it is interesting how white Fight Club is. Like mm-hmm. there, I I started studying the shots because to some degree, it's like all of these fights are taking place in very grimy, green, underlit spaces. And the really dark-skinned characters like almost disappear into the background because it's so dark. But when you look at like Project Mayhem, for instance, you're you're basically seeing skinheads. You're yeah. seeing like a one or two people of color, and it's it's mostly white guys within a certain fairly narrow age band, uh, and like fairly similar faces. Yeah, they're all kind of clones. And then like the fact that that uh, Tyler, the man that he menaces with the gun, is Asian. I don't think that's an accident either. I think that's you know it's kind of like Taxi Driver where uh, the racism of the main character goes a little un- unstated, but it's not hard to find either. Yeah, I almost wish that, that that it's, I mean, it's not like this film doesn't hit things hard, but I almost wish that the white supremacist kind of mm-hmm. like feeling of it was actually something that, that was clear. Or... Real life sequels made it clear. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it was, well, I mean, that's, it becomes then the question of just, of awareness, of just like, you know, when you see criticisms of Fight Club then and now, it has to do with, is this a film that it's you know it's it's the whole depiction does not mean endorsement thing is it like what is, is this a film that is articulating a cultural phenomenon or is it a film that is as Ebert suggested out and out fascist I mean I I, I very strongly feel the former mm-hmm. is the case I think Ebert is, was wrong about that I feel like if it had underlined if it had tried to make it clearer it like. There's so much talking to the audience here. You know, if we'd taken a moment to say, you know, kids, this is bad. Yeah. Uh, these people are bad people and you shouldn't want to emulate them. Uh, I, like, I, I just, I don't know how you make it more obvious without losing the the kind of duality that makes this film so exciting, that makes it subversive and transgressive and startling. And I mean, people are going to misread it. People are going to misread any piece of art. So, you know, it's, it is what it is in that, in that capacity, I think. Regarding that convenience store uh, sequence, I, I kept finding myself distracted during that sequence by the fact that in that moment, Tyler Durden's philosophy is basically Jigsaw's philosophy. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's just straight up the saw, like threaten people's lives and make them do anything to escape. And tomorrow, like that sunrise is going to be the most beautiful sunrise ever kind of thing. (laughs) And it feels weird 
like seeing given how huge that uh, movie franchise has gotten, how sprawling it's gotten, seeing it condensed down to a single scene that they then move on from and never mention it again mm-hmm. just feels odd to me. The aesthetics aren't that different either. Like the sort of you know, where, <laughs> they both have existing worlds where like every surface is probably sticky. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like my feeling. Like the, the Paper Street of, uh, building is like everything in there looks sticky. I, yeah, it's sort of like uh, with Alien, where the you know Ridley Scott just had them like paint the walls with slime. Mm-hmm. It feels like that, except it it feels more like maybe old popcorn grease and like newspaper residue. Sure, David Fincher's set designers and set decorators must, must spend a lot of time just grubbing things up. Yeah, so Tosh, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, so you, you're right up front in your keynote about the assumed sort of breakdown in response to this film on along gender lines you talk about ebert dismissing the film as you know as macho porn and as a fascist film like death wish and then you counter it with janet maslin who was a supporter of the film i was curious about why you were up front with that and that ultimate question of like how do you look at Fight Club as as someone that is not male? I mean, uh, just to to clarify, I'm certainly it made a good transition from one quote to the next, but uh, I'm certainly not implying that you know women somehow have a better angle on Fight Club, despite what Ebert said. That is an interesting analysis, but it's a very <laughs> gender absolutist analysis, and I, you know I know as many men who like are not into swaggering macho porn and like think that toxic masculinity is a crock that people are handled as I've seen women online who totally buy into the gender stereotypes, you know, neither gender has any kind of monopoly on uh, being blinkered about (laughs) gender or about society in general. Yeah. I, it's hard for me to, that's why I keep asking you guys so many questions like along these lines, because it's hard for me to, to see this movie like as as anything other than I am like it's hard for me to tell what part of my interpretation of it is coming from being a woman I can tell you like this is on the surface of it a pretty misogynistic film it's very dismissive about uh you know we're a generation of men raised by women and that's what's wrong with the world you know the one female character is pretty badly used by the film and is sort of alternately like an evil dragon stealing Jack's only comfort Mm -hmm. uh, and this, you know, sort of like tawdry uh, bombshell of a person and in the end kind of a, a woman in distress. It doesn't bother me any more than, say, the lack of women in Glengarry Glen Ross does. And that's one of my all-time favorite films. Like, here, it's so much a movie about questioning what it means to be a man and then questioning deeper than that what people who have an answer to that question can do to manipulate people who are desperately asking that question. It's such a film about finding people's buttons and pushing them and how far that can get you in life. And it's a movie about cults. So like within all of this, I find it fascinating and fun, but I, I don't see it as saying anything that's necessarily true about, you know, men qua men, like men with a capital M. I don't think it necessarily gets at any like fundamental truth, at least not from my perspective. I think you know, any more than like the end cell philosophy is saying something like clear and, and definite about like men as a gender. I think it has a really good insight about a really specific narrow segment of humanity. Mm-hmm. And it expands that into a look at like anti-consumerist culture in general in a really interesting way. 
But just in general, I just dig this movie. It's it's fun. It's lively. It's surprising. And if I recall, you've dug it from day one too. You were you were on board in '99. I was absolutely on board in '99, and in part because film critics fall into this trap of we see the same movie regurgitated over and over and over. <laughs> Lion King, <laughs> and we we get so tired of it. And something like Fight Club comes along, and it's like I've never seen this story before. And if I'd seen anything remotely resembling it, it wasn't told this way. It was surprising even just watching it because there wasn't this great awareness of what it even was about when it came out. I remember um, seeing the trailer. I was like, oh, this looks interesting. An underground fight club. We'll we'll see what that's that's all about. I like seven. And then I accidentally found found myself reading an article of spoilers about a week before it came out. I was like, it's about what now? (laughs) (laughs) Where does this movie go? You know, so it, and it really doesn't. It, it ends in a very different place than it begins. Yeah, and I can't help but wonder if, like the the failure at the box office and uh, critics, so many critics panning it at the time, came from that place of we we didn't know what to expect and we got this and it's a big question mark. Like I think there's a reaction that happens when. It's why I'm so down against uh, like A24's habit of misleading trailers that make all their movies look like conventional horror films. <laughs> you walk into a theater expecting a certain thing, you get something very different. You know, there's the type of person that's like, that was exciting. I, I didn't expect any of that. And there's a type of person that's like, I just laid laid down, you know, $24 on uh, tickets and popcorn in order to see x and i got something completely different you know i wanted a romantic comedy i got a banana you know just Mm -hmm. just that (laughs) level of disassociation and i think it took a while for it to sink in like so many cult films and find its audience yeah and then the nice thing for a cult film then was a uh, hit though, wasn't it? I mean, no, Fight Club was not a hit. Was not no, Fight Club it's a box it, office it, disappointment. It took a oh, bath in Fight Club. The thing, the thing is though, it, it, with that and Office Space being another example, there was a longer tail at that point where something really would develop a cult, then make their money back on DVD. Mm. Well, there's a little bit more willingness to take chances like this because of that, and then there's not there's not that secondary. Well, this is a double feature for you right there. Uh, there, by uh, the yeah, way, Office, office Space, yeah, space yeah. and Fight Club. Those, those, mm. would, those would go well together. Um, you could just cut the sequence, one of the the basement fight club sequences together with the taking on the uh, the, <laughs> the copy the machine. Copy machine. <laughs> I never remember if it's a copy machine or a fax machine. Yeah, it's a PC load loader. It's a printer, isn't it? It's yeah. it's just one of all those. Yeah. All in one. Uh, we, we've we've all seen oh, Office Space oh, many times. Terrible. We promise. Yeah, definitely. It seems like one of those horrible all in ones, doesn't it? We're we're talking a lot about the the big themes of uh, fight club but we haven't really talked about the performances mm-hmm. what do you what do you guys have to say about the the actual like people on the screen in fight club well it's very well cast i mean Ed- edward norton it's strange because we don't see him that much because he's so demanding about his projects that i i he just doesn't work as much as you'd think but he was he was such a this is so perfectly timed in his career, like where his, his big breakthrough with Primal Fear a couple of years earlier, where he was playing someone who looked like on the outside was like a sort of a meek, weak fellow. And this is in some ways kind of a sequel to that performance too. He's so good as a put upon office drone. I mean, Brad Pitt is, uh, uh, I think really 
great in this film as well. And it has sort of proven that you can kind of, uh, he can handle whatever strange thing you hand him. I think, I think he's boring when, when you ask him to be normal. Uh, but when you give him something where he's a character with, with an edge to him, he's, he's really good. And I think we talked a little bit about how Marla being a little bit of a underdeveloped character, but I think having Helena Bottom Carter in that does a lot of work for you because she's such an assured presence and she is so, it's funny now to see this now, it seems like the type of the role she plays all the time. This was pre Burton. This is before. This is like before she became yeah. Tim Burton's go-to person. For, she was in the costume for, dramas a lot. Yeah, of the time. Uh, yeah. Uh, Wings. I mean, she just. I think Wings of the Dove was part of why she got this film because they were impressed with the performance in that. And that's. But that's very much the sort of Wings of the Dove and 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 the uh, which was a Henry James adaptation. All the Enforcer adaptation she was in. That was what she was known for. Yeah. Not sort of like an edgy goth person, which was uh, became her her stock and trade after that. That's a good point. The other though, I will one performance i would mention too in connection to edward norton is his performance in american history x which mm, was the year true. before yeah yeah and it kind of points to this character type who's impressionable mm-hmm. right and, and malleable and 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 uh capable of convincing himself of an entire radical belief system because the other inputs in his, his life are the he, he he's a character in both senses who who is looking for some sense of direction. I mean, the, the, the trajectory of, of the two films is reversed. I mean, American History X starts with him being a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi who then breaks down and, and goes to prison and gets sort of broken down and sees sees the light. And here it's kind of the opposite where he's, he starts sort of broken down and then embraces this ideology. But it's the same kind of guy, I think, in both, in both films. And I think it's a character that Edward Norton plays really well. And then and Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt. He's just he's a movie star, and he's super charismatic, and he's exactly the type of person who you, who you look at and think this guy's pretty cool. He's pretty persuasive. I want to be like him, um, and that's it. I mean, that's what you that's what a movie star does. So uh, he's terrific. Another detail in in, in the Raftery book was talking about how costuming him was kind of like an exercise in seeing how far they could they could push his costumes and like <laughs> how anything like just really do, would look dumb and dorky on other people would look kind of cool on Brad Pitt and where they drew the line was at one point they had him in a halter top <laughs> they decided that was just oh, wow. that was that was a step too far even for uh, Tyler Durden wow yeah there's a I mean speaking of the homoeroticness of this movie like there's a lot of shirtless men mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, very lean bodies and there's so much of him I mean just kind of being paraded around but we all know that 20 years later he won't look good without a shirt on right so you've seen once upon a time <laughs> yeah, in america was, how many times ridiculous. now i've twice now but yeah what's the time in hollywood was, so was, oh i'm sorry yeah. but that's absurd this uh, as an aside come on he's in, he's in his 50s now yeah, or something yeah, yeah, yeah. ridiculous yeah. <laughs> was, was that like was that like airbrushed or something no, i think it was all him incredible yeah so uh before we wrap i just i want to bring out the fact that uh tyler at one point he's he's talking to his project mayhem people who he's you know army style breaking them down in order to build them back up in the shape he wants them and he says you're not special you're not a beautiful and unique snowflake <laughs> uh so that that's that's the origin i mean the the polonic novel originated it but you know fight club the movie popularized it and this is a phrase that we've seen ported over to social media and we've just watched it mutate and mutate yeah. until just calling somebody a snowflake is a way of saying, you know, you're a 
a fragile person who can't deal with reality, e.g. my political viewpoints, and yeah. are instead admired in a fake made-up reality of your own, e.g. your political viewpoints. Yeah. Uh, and it's used by both sides to denote uh, a kind of like inability to hear opposing opinions. None I would of say that. it's used by one side, Tasha. Oh, no. It's been heavily really? reclaimed. The left? The left has been calling people snowflakes? Hell yeah. Maybe ironically. No, not at all. I mean, I you know, these days, if you're... I mean, I like calling people snowflakes, but just because the right does it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of it. But uh, I let's let's Scott, just say... You know who, can you use the word snowflakes? You know, you know who uses that word? Cucks. That's who. <laughs> Beta cucks. The kind of people who get beat on in this movie. Yeah. Like, who, 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 kind of people who don't, have never gotten a fight in their lives like me. Let's just say that uh, the kind of people who unironically use snowflakes mm-hmm. are often the most fragile, oh, yes. brittle, mm-hmm. easily offended, how dare you think something uh, different from me kind of people in the world. So <laughs> yeah, both sides have been using Snowflake a lot. But the point is, it means something entirely different in this movie. And it's also, it's used, I don't want to say ironically, but it's part of his speech that's basically like, stop being people so you can be like useful units in my army. It's a terrible thing to say, because it's it's manipulative in the service of breaking people down into like mindless sheep. So I'm yeah. I'm just curious, sort of, what you make of of either how it's used in the movie or kind of how that that concept has evolved. It's almost as if people could see this movie and misinterpret it. <laughs> it's kind of latch on to the really superficial uh, cool coolness of 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 Durden and everything, and and, and miss the larger point. Um, that's all I have well, to say. I mean, snowflakes have two qualities. Well, probably more. This is very stupid. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> One is that it's a snowflake is unique because a snowflake is like no other snowflake. And the other is that a snowflake can melt, right? And so I think what's what's ha- the mutation has happened from Fight Club, which is all about uniqueness, and it's become about melting. It's about become, oh, you're just a, you're a snowflake. You're, you don't hold up to any kind of heat, right my ideas are too awesome and radical for you to uh be withstand them so you're gonna you're gonna go off and cry about it so this, those are two different things so i don't know i don't it's it, it's something that um this term has become is become so far removed from its origin that i that it was kind of surprising in fact i had forgotten that it was in the in, in the movie until mm-hmm. uh, our producer uh, dan jakes uh reminded me uh that it was there it's, it's significant obviously it's it's a touchstone but i i don't think i just i don't think it's used the same way it's not the same not the same word no language evolves and yeah. society involves and our understanding society involves especially through uh, social media which gives us a lot of access to worlds we would not see otherwise yeah, thank goodness but the chuck polinick might have been tapped into 20 years ago he certainly was well, we'll have a lot more to say about Fight Club next week when we bring in Art of Self-Defense and talk about the two of them together. Um, but we should really wrap up and get on to feedback. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've been late on feedback lately, so this is a good time to take that anything else in the world of film bit seriously and ask us questions or send in comments about cinema thoughts in general. Uh, For instance, here's one from Caleb asking about our hometown. Scott? Uh, Caleb writes, I'm a new transplant to Chicago and moved just down the street from Music Box Theater, which seems great. 
What other theaters or theater-related things should I prepare myself to indulge in now that I've moved to the second city? Well, first of all, Caleb, welcome to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and we and we are recording this just down the street from Music Rocks Theater, so perhaps you're in this studio right now. <laughs> you're not. Um, but uh, <laughs> but so but uh, yeah, I think we we can suggest. We I think what we want to do is answer Caleb's question and then answer the question that we wish Ca- <laughs> that we want to have asked of us. So let's do the let's answer his question first. Where should he, where should he see some movies? I mean, uh, Music Box is so great. I can't endorse it enough. And and they just do great programming there. There's really smart of their presentations. I was turning into advertisement. We just saw but Scott and I just saw Once Upon a Time in dot 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 Hollywood last night in 70 millimeter they do a 70 millimeter film festival there um everyone that works there is nice they have good popcorn they have beer you they know. do have beer. No, they, they have they have like recently revamped um, last couple of years added like a lounge yeah. to it like really d- done a nice job upgrading it. But I'm really into a few. I mean, I, I'm really into what a few people have done, which is take old theaters and revamp them really nicely. Uh, one would be the the Logan close to the dissolves old office where you know not the hugest screens in the world, but they do a nice job with uh, the ambiance. It's basically all these lobby cards from the 70s and 80s. I feel like I'm when I first started going to movies. I feel like going back. In time and then the, the davis here which was a, a neighborhood theater that shut down for about a year it used to be a place you go it was cheap and you know if you didn't really care too much about um you know ambiance or going to the restroom and something that didn't look like it was in a saw movie it was a fine place to go <laughs> um but uh they've really done it up nicely it's a beautiful looking place uh, these days uh, i think you should also mention you know the cisco film center i was there. i was oh, that was the one i was gonna bring up. i was gonna wait for in in, in uh, the landmark too so but I'll, you know, go yeah Gosh. the the cisco downtown uh just gets some terrific programming in mm-hmm. um it's i don't go there nearly as often as i, I I should because it's like it's a bit of a hike for me at this point. But uh, yeah, if you want something like a full Miyazaki retrospective, um, just like presented in in ultra high fidelity, like like crisp video, crisp sound, uh, they're just they're very state of the art over there. um, And they're very into cinema history. And in an era where it can be harder to see like older films um, because so much new stuff is making it to streaming services and they're deprioritizing the, the classics. You know, something like the Criterion channel is great for, for catching the kind of stuff at home. Um, but if you want to actually see it on a screen with people around you, like the Siskel is is pretty hard to beat. I just recommend uh, watching them in general. I used to go there more before I uh, became a father. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go down and see Brewster McCloud this week. I wish there were clients. Oh my God, Brewster yeah, McCloud. Play? on Friday, twice on Friday. Oh, geez, I may have to. I've I've with, never seen that, me. and it's fantastically unavailable. Yeah. It's been for no, such it's, a long time. It's, it's on Blu-ray now, actually. Through Warner. Oh well, Archive, screw but, that. But Why would still. you see a movie in a theater? <laughs> wow, uh, you, speaking of turn so quickly. Speaking of theaters, uh, if you're going to the Music Box on the Regs, uh, just uh, like allow me to recommend on the on Southport, the street that it's on, uh, just to the north of uh, the Music Box, like on that same block. But if you walk north, uh, you'll come across this little uh, Argentinian bodega uh, that's like one of the most New York's style bodegas I have run across in Chicago. Uh, and they have a big warmer full of empanadas that are like two bucks. It's like empanadas. It, it really we is. We went to get empanadas last night. There's like a third empanada place. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's well, yeah, there's, there's uh, Cafe Tola. There's, uh, and then when there's... Um, 5143 or right, something like that. Right, yeah. Or... And, and uh, yeah, so, so if you want empanadas, you've got 
many choices and, and ice creams. Uh, there's a gelato place that uh, there's a soft serve. There was a fro- froyo place so that shut a, down. There's a Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the other empanada places are fancier and like if you if you're looking for something involving figs and goat cheese yes. uh, i absolutely recommend that but if you're if you're just looking for like something basic and cheap and delicious and possibly a strange Ar- argentinian treat to go with it uh they have a lot of like imported uh, candies and things like that um <laughs> and it's uh yeah it's a it's a really good eaten neighborhood uh, for sure. Um, so, but there was a question that we. What are, one more thing. The landmark is it's a place uh, you go to a lot. Too. Yeah, I mean it's 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 um in a very strange location. Yeah, so, it, <laughs> it, it's part of why it's become increasingly, um, it's become increasingly part of the appeal. Like when when I first moved to Chicago, it was like this on the top floor, close to the top floor of like this fairly bustling mall that which basically everything has since gone out of business. Like yeah, we used to have like uh, like a. Uh, like a stereo store, and a, and a game bunch of store, game store, which is a cool game store too. It's uh, it's this weird Guggenheim style mall that uh, with just like a contiguous ramp from the bottom mm-hmm. where you you can walk up in a giant circle built around an empty open space where you can look all the way down to the bottom. And there used to be just like an amazing eatery slash uh, upscale grocery <laughs> well, what's down, down there. there now, Tasha. Uh, cobwebs. No, no, no. no. The axe throwing place. Yeah, uh, the axe throwing place. That's where they. Well, no, okay. Yeah. Yeah, bad I, axe, bad axe throw. You, it's, it's freaking surreal because you. It's this, it's this empty MC Escher nightmare of a place now, <laughs> and, and 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 because it's it's wide open, all five floors going down. Um, you can hear. Uh, the just the thwacking of axes against against wood, um, it's pretty distracting and pretty weird. I mean, you know, I I, I exited uh, the film uh, The Art of Self Defense. I saw it there, and I exited the theater, and it's very disturbing and punctuated by violence. And I walked out, and suddenly it was like, pop! It's like, <laughs> oh my god, what the hell? And I I stared down, and then I saw the bit the, the big big axe uh, logo that's like takes up the whole floor. It's like a whole thing. Like you take. You take like you know, uh, it's like a business thing. You have like a business get together where people are throwing axes at things. That's wow. ridiculous. I, I've seen plenty of video of the axe ring place. I didn't realize that was where it was located. Uh, yep. It's been too long since I've been to the landmark. Caleb, there is your answer. Uh, go for the first run movies. Stay for the axe throwing. <laughs> yeah. The question though that we wanted to answer was favorite movie landmarks though right like chicago movie landmarks yeah we were we were slightly hoping when we uh misread this in passing (laughs) that you were asking us about like just great film related things to do in chicago it's a good segue though that 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 um the music box figures prominently in a couple of different films on top of my head is uh uh, high fidelity most famously and also uh the film the channing tatum uh rachel mcadams romance uh the vow basically opens with like this like almost like pornographic uh pan down the music box is a beautiful sign so so uh you know that's it is itself a movie landmark and what else have we uh you could do quite quite a high fidelity tour as well because I, I though i because uh it, it was geographically correct because there's a bit uh where he go, he's at the biograph and then mm-hmm. he crosses the street to see, um, they get sh- killed as one does when they <laughs> use a biograph. Yeah, when you're in town, and then uh, he goes ac- across the street to uh, the Lounge Axe, mm-hmm. uh, R.I.P. That uh, yeah. um, and goes to see sees uh, Lisa 
Bonet play that was correct. That lounge acts used to be there until they got noise complaints, which is a yeah, bummer because that place was fantastic. Uh, I was hip enough to see a couple of last shows in that place. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very small venue, but uh, but pretty impressive. Um, so there's a lost piece of history there, but there are still active pieces of history that people can go and visit if they come to town and want to do kind of a movie tour. Tasha, do you have a favorite? Uh, my personal favorite is the James R. Thompson Center downtown, um, which is uh, these days largely, I believe, taken up by government offices. Uh, and since 9-11, you can't actually just like, get in the elevator and go up to the top of it anymore. Mm. Um, but it features uh, hugely in the the closing act, like the big uh, final chase fight sequence of uh, Running Scared, the 1986 Gregory Hines, Billy Crystal, uh, you know, cop actioner. Um, and it's <laughs> it's just an amazing space. It's an amazing space in the film, and it's uh, like used to advantage. If you can picture a gigantic bubble made out of glass and red and blue beams, and you're kind of standing in the middle of it uh, with it just sort of hovering over you. And then there's an elevator just like sort of up the middle, kind of anomalously. Um, And around the base of it is uh, like a bunch of little mall shops. And then everything from up there is open plan office that you can literally look into just like standing on the ground floor. It is the strangest building. Um, <laughs> and there's a food court in the basement and uh, like the DMV and various things. So <laughs> yeah, you can, you like can the, get in. The look of the building is very strange from the outside. Yeah, too. there's also uh, like a big L, L station hub yeah, there yeah. Um, with it's a bunch of different lines running all, through. Yeah. So yeah, you can just sort of go in and, and wander around in this space and, you know, imagine Gregory Hines uh, <laughs> sh- trying to shoot people from elevators and whatnot um but yeah it's it's by far my favorite like like movie location like prominent movie location to hang out in yeah what about you scott uh well a couple um uh we talked about thief on this podcast and so you can you can go uh, go and visit the green mill which uh gets blown up in thief but it's very it much <laughs> it's well not, preserved not, not blown up in real life um no no and i think it has a a, a rich um, history, uh, and, uh, but there are some bullet holes that are still on the, on the wall. It's kind of a gangster hangout and remains a jazz club. The other place I kind of wanted to point out was uh, is a place called Fireside Bowl, which is featured in Widows recently, which is a quite a good Chicago film. If you're looking for a really strong use of Chicago lo- locations, that film has got a lot going on. But Fireside Bowl is a, is a kind of an interesting place because it was where, uh, when the Dissolve existed, it was where um, uh, the Dissolve and Pitchfork had their the media, media bowling league. And it's, and it's a, an extraordinarily modest space it was off it often was used um for punk shows and things like that and it's got a nice if you want a super unpretentious place to go bowling that has a has an awesome jukebox fireside bowl is the place to go and it's also you know in three featured two or three scenes in widows keith there's a you know sometimes it's just the just the uh, skyline and such that that is what I feel I feel most Chicago when you get just sort of you know scenes of people walking through downtown. But if you really want to recreate a specific experience, it's not a film set in Chicago per se. Although it's a very Chicago version of Gotham City and in the in the Dark Knight, there's a very memorable chase scene set on on Lower Wacker Drive, which is one of the more striking bits of, uh, of places you can drive here in Chicago because it's all underground and it's. I find driving there perfectly pleasant, but there is the film kind of captures the experience of being in this sort of semi-enclosed space where the the noise bounces off the walls and the, and and the sound of the other cars 
is really kind of prominent in a way it's not when you're driving above ground and the sort of like hazy twilight look of of what it is to drive down there no matter what time of day you're down there. Yeah. So if you want to, I would not recommend driving um, at high speeds um, and fight, <laughs> fighting the Joker while you're down there, but is you get a sense of like how little they had to do to change the, the, <laughs> the look and experience of driving a lower Wacker drive if you do that. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of uh, films and, and TV shows have been shot in Chicago. There's a lot of resources online uh, if you want to like play tourist a little before you get hometown inured and uh, don't do that sort of thing anymore. And in the meantime, maybe we'll see you at the music box. Uh, we'll look for the guy with a bag of empanadas. <laughs> Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about a different kind of fight club, the secret karate night courses taught by an enigmatic instructor in Riley Stern's The Art of Self-Defense, openly modeled after Fincher's Fight Club. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you could support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. Follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, if you're looking for clean food, I strongly recommend you avoid the clam chowder. (laughs) 